Hi, welcome to Carbon Design's MindShift podcast. I'm Scott Gellum and I'll be your host today. We'll explore new ways of thinking, new technologies, and new insights to help drive business performance. So let's get started. Hello, welcome to MindShift. And today my guest is Dr. Um, Howard Dover, and you've got a long title, so I have to look down, make sure I get this right. It's the Director Center of Professional Sales and Sales Coach. Did I get that right? Yes. Great. Sales Great. Coach is fun because that's only on my 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 office door, but apparently it's made it out there. Yeah, yeah. And and today's topic is going to be the future of B two B selling. Uh, you and I go back to Gartner's Sales and Marketing Thought Leadership uh, Roundtable five, six years, I guess. And we've always had some spirited discussions about sales and marketing and where it's headed. So today I'm really interested and uh, looking forward to get, getting your thoughts on where we're headed. Wonderful. Look forward to it. You're always, you're always asking provocative questions. So Yeah. So before we get started, just for listeners, um, it, you have a very interesting, I think, very interesting um, journey to academia. And so I'd love to have you talk about a little bit about your background and then talk about the University of Dallas uh, at Texas and and that center that you have there. Pretty unique and uh, worth really talking about. Well, I started, I'll, I'll try to give the abbreviated version, but my I grew up in a pretty poor home in Marin County, California, which is a paradox in and of itself. And um, I just had to work for everything. If I wanted anything, I, I you know, I learned very early that that I could I could sell to get what I wanted um, as a poor kid, and that was kind of cool. So I, that, that's kind of when you you know that's the start of the journey. But uh, I, I went to college at, at Brigham Young University and owned my own sales company that put me through school. Um, I was a really ignorant 20-year-old um, because I, I, I made more than my professors by the time I graduated, which isn't a good thing when you're 20 and ignorant. But um, I know that now. I wish I could go back and coach that 20-year-old. My life would be so different. But alas, I'm where I'm at. I ended up working for the state of Oregon as a systems analyst for five years because I lost my company just due to me being an ignorant kid, right? <laughs> I now know it because, I mean, you know, failure is fun to assess when you call it failure and then you can look at it. And uh, but, you know, that was a very interesting, serendipitous moment. I didn't know I had the capacity to design computer systems and connect, you know, mass amounts of data and and very complex systems. Um, and, And that taught me that and that I could code. Right. I, I, I didn't know I could code. I. And so not only could I code, but I could translate the business process into automating processes and and creating efficiencies. So I was really, really productive at that. And and, uh, I I won't get extremely personal, but I I had a moment in which I realized I probably, I I woke up with cold sweats with code running through my head at night and I was literally like freaking out. And I was like, God, I'm not happy. I'm really good at what I do, but I'm not happy. But I love sales. So I went, well, wait a minute, maybe I need to transition back. And that's that's the moment of the epiphany to go get a PhD, which is a very weird epiphany for anybody who has had a real paycheck. Um, 
And so I went to the University of Texas at Dallas. And if you don't know, UT Dallas is one of two university PhD granting institutions in the United States that's a pure quant school, meaning they don't teach any behavioralist behavioral theory. They don't really teach any managerial theory in the marketing area. It's pure game theory and econometrics and statistics. It's just, it's just pure math, um, <clears throat> which really wasn't a good fit for a guy who was ignorant. Remember I said I was ignorant before. So um, that was a real interesting experience because once again, I'm, I'm mathematically inclined, but I'm not that mathematically inclined yeah. in comparison to the world stage I entered. Got my degree, thought I was going to be a quant researcher for the rest of my life. And the Great Recession hit. And I was out at Salisbury University, my first appointment, and none of my kids could get a job. And for the first two years, the sale, the professor gig was awesome. Yeah. 2006, 2007, my D students were getting 60 to 70K a year jobs up in DC. Great recession hit, nobody was getting a job. Yeah. And it bugged me, Scott. It just bugged me. I said, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm teaching what I think is marketable skills, right? Sure. Yeah. And my product is unhirable in, in a down market. And I, I, I talked to a lot of my peers and they're like, yeah, what are you talking about? We're, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, we don't, you don't have connections. You don't, you don't understand what, what's the pulse? What do we need to do? And yeah, that began a journey of saying, I'm never going to be irrelevant again. And I, I, you know, the research is secondary to me being relevant to the street and, and preparing students for game ready moments yeah. is my primary aim. I, I started doing that at Salisbury and UTD, my, my PhD granting, noticed what I was doing and said, hey, come back, yeah. come back and, and, and do what you're doing for us instead of where you're at because, you know, we, we kind of need what you're doing. And I formed the sales center at UT Dallas eight years ago. And once again, serendipity, right? I mean, I didn't, I didn't create a strategy to do what I'm doing. But the market, because I became market-centric and focused, talking to people like you, talking to people like Brent, talking to people like you know the VPs of Oracle and the VPs of IBM and Intel who were on my board, and they pushed me to a level and continue to push me to a level that says, hey, the market's moving, your curriculum should move with it. Yeah, yeah. So that's where we're at today. Okay. We brought up a really good point about getting – your students ready for the workplace and getting them jobs. So sales profession is number one entry level position. If you go check indeed or any other job sites and you search on sales development rep or business development rep, you're going to find that there's more jobs available than there are people. So why aren't more schools teaching and are getting kids ready for that profession? I, I, I want to rebut your statement and answer your question <laughs> simultaneously because you and I both know that an SDR role is not necessarily sales. So I'll put that on the sideline for a moment and answer your question. Um, I, I think one of the re there, there's several reasons. It's a deep reason, but I think the primary there's two primary reasons. Number one, 
academia is not compensated to prepare people for the market period. Co academia compensates itself by research productivity, not student preparedness for the marketplace. So that's the first challenge. That's across all disciplines in the business world, by the way, in the business school yeah, arena. So that's the first problem. Yeah. Second problem, sales is not considered a, a serious profession by most deans or, and or marketing chairs in the world, let alone the United States. Yeah. Okay. So, so there, there's, there's your two reasons, or at least the headwind yeah. that creates a lack of interest in creating a product, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you, and you're able in your um, position to, to see people choose this path. So the question I have is, are there, is there such a thing as a natural born seller? Sure. What sure. do they look I mean, like? I, I'd be silly to say no, right? Is there a natural born, does charisma come out of the womb and the genetic expression and environment just get created and that you are a, a attractive, genetically expressed attractive or socially um, charismatic individual? And will that lead to higher productivity in sales? Absolutely. Now, that's one element of the equation. So um, can you take an introvert who does not have all those attributes and make them as effective or even more effective than what I just described? Yeah. Absolutely. So it's all depending on what, what segment of the market you're selling into, right? If it's a schmooze game, um, I, I, yeah, I think there's some inherent... Um, born into it realities, right? But I think as you get into complexity, that gets you in the door, but it doesn't get you to the deal. So what are the attributes of a good sales person? I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote my two, a, a, a VP of global sales, one of, the, one of the most impressive companies I've ever met, said, if you, could, if you could develop two attributes by the time you hand them off to me, I could do anything with them. Yeah. They're probably not what you're thinking. So number one, number one is coachability. Hmm. What I mean by coachability is, and this is, this is, a, this is an inherent attribute, um, we learn and then we do. And unfortunately, as we grow, the, the, the gap, between what we know and what we do expands. Coachability is not that you're willing to learn. We can all learn. Coachability means that you learn and adapt yeah. the behavior according to the learning. So that's the first attribute that, by the way, any, any successful person, let alone a salesperson, has to develop. Sure. The second one is, strangely enough, follow up. Hmm. If you can do those two things, you're going to outperform most of the market. Hmm. And I, I would agree with that. And we actually measure both of those in our program. It was very, very hard. Eight years ago, one of our advisory board members said, I think this is all great, but I need intangibles. Yeah. Like coachability and follow-up. And I'm like, and we now have a coachability score that is worth between 
20 and 40% of the overall grade in the course. And it's made up of your ability to modify when given instruction and yeah. follow up. Why do you think follow up is an issue? Is this a person's mentality that sales is just a game or a numbers game that they're just going to keep moving on to the next person? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe the, the next opportunity is always more interesting than what you have. Yeah. I, let, let's take it in segments. Obviously, the first one is laziness. You know, it's, I, listen, when you get a deal, when you, when you close a deal, it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like, you know, rarely, once again, coming back to these personality traits, this is where I think an introvert sometimes outperforms the extrovert. Because, you know, when the extrovert, maybe when the extrovert wins a deal, they're like, party, 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 <laughs> right? And, and all the follow-up goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah. The introvert is like, let's get the next one. Oh, yeah, I got I got stuff to do. I had promises to make, and boom, 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 boom. Yeah. The follow-up goes. And it's fascinating for me to watch this with students. I get somebody who pops a big deal and they basically fail the class. Yeah. Then I get somebody who just just chugs, 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 and just blows things up. I think the other thing is, so that that that's the lazy side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum is busy. Right. I mean, I think sometimes with especially with the mechanization of the field, yeah. the, 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 the automation of the field, sometimes we turn on things and we get too much coming at us. And so we don't prioritize and therefore we fail to follow up. Yeah. I get, it happens to me if I have a spike in 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 activity it becomes actually impossible to follow up on everything. Yeah. And this is, this is probably a, one of the challenges a lot of companies make is that they turn on technology without thinking about the infrastructure impact and the fact that you can blow through a whole area of white space very quickly. Yeah. Not following up after you turn on a machine. Yeah. Well, that brings up two related questions to the future selling. One is, a lot of research out there that says the sales organizations have invested a lot in, in IT platforms mm -hmm. to enable salespeople, but yet sales productivity hasn't gone up. So that's the yeah. first question I'll ask you is why is that happening? And then I'll have, I got another follow-up question related, but I want to hear what your thoughts are on that first one. So I, I've been studying this now for about four to five years. The first one is I haven't understood why, why sales organizations haven't adopted technology at a faster pace. It's been baffling to me. As I've studied that, now I've actually turned the question to, wow, those that have, haven't improved their productivity. You know, the experience curve is, is, a, is a theory that as we invest technologically, we, should, we, we tend to be able to get better, yeah. right? As you produce, it's a production concept, right? And I'm, I'm sure you know about it. But for those that are listening, the idea is that when I have done a job, that every time I double the amount of job I've done, I should have an efficiency gain, right? Right. Yeah. And as, as I do it more, I get better at it. Yep. And, and yet, I think what you've identified is there, there appears to be no experience curve in sales. Yeah. Which is, and especially because we're automating. So we should have the productivity gain of efficiency and because of the massive amount of time, we should be getting an efficacy experience curve. And we're getting neither. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yet we're investing massive amounts of money. Well, that would imply in some ways that there isn't truly a sales process. Oh. <laughs> there is a sales process, but it is often extremely unrelated to a buyer's life and a customer's journey. So are organizations adopting and turning things around and adopting buyer's journeys? And what does that do to their technology, the way they've enabled it? I have not seen too many companies that are buyer-centric. Wow. Those that are, so I, I, this is the book I'm writing. It's called The Sales Innovation Paradox because we have invested and the investment from 90% of the market or more has been exactly what we've described. However, there are like glimmers of hope and, yeah. and sunshine out there where you're seeing productivity pops in the 4X to 8X to 10X performance differentials, which is what you would expect to see. Right. I mean, not that you could not that you could maintain that kind of productivity gain, but because we're so unproductive. Yeah. And you would assume that if we get it right, we should see an exponential pop. Um, those companies that are doing that are discussing things not in a that they don't have a sales process. They have a buyer centric journey. Um, mapping and augmented all types of augmentation around observing the customer and the journey points, identifying with AI technology, trying to analyze massive amounts of funnel movement to identify those who need an augmented experience or a sales, a sales interaction to bring the journey to a natural spot of revenue generation. Yeah. But most people don't talk that way. You do and I do, but most companies I talk to are like they have a sales process and they're building a sales machine. Yeah. And and the buyer is over here being assaulted by that machine. Yeah. I, I have a keynote and I I actually show castles at the beginning. And um I won't go through the whole storyline, but there's this beautiful castle in Austria. It's up in the hillsides. It's called Hochhostowitz. And the joke I will say is that in, in, for, for those of you who don't speak German, it's pronounced Hochhostowitz because there is no way to pronounce it otherwise. <laughs> and it has 17 gates, Scott. And each one of those gates will kill you in a different way if you weren't invited to the castle. And I use that to describe that when, when all these companies have designed processes, yeah. sales processes, they are thinking internally, not externally. And so now you have the customer who has thousands of people creating processes yeah. to go after them. So what, have, what has a customer done? Well, the customer's created a host of it. They've created defensive mechanisms. They have an inner sanctum. And if you're invited in, you can have a really nice conversation in the beautiful sanctuary of this castle up and it has a beautiful view and it has a beautiful garden. Yeah. But you know what? If you're not invited, 
I've got ways to just destroy you or ignore you. And right. I develop my defensive mechanisms because of you. Right. And because of the other people. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think that as it relates to sales process and buyer's journeys, marketing years ago started to see the light and understand there is a buyer's journey. Then they started turning things around and trying to address the steps along that journey and how we would align content based on your need along that journey, knowing that that buyer controlled that journey. I actually believe now that that doesn't belong to marketing. It actually should belong to sales. And that marketing, because it's gotten pulled down by sales, and particularly in the environment that we're in currently, is actually trying to do a sales job. And that it is trying to market at the very beginning of a process, whatever you want to call it, a communication to get a buyer to respond. That, and when there's 17 people on average, according to our friends at Gartner, involved in a buying group, and if you go and analyze past respondents to marketing activities, they are not buyers. They're not truly buyers. They're not at the C level. These are people who are paying attention and seeking information and they share it internally in the organization. And so marketing's job, especially in this environment when everybody's in the digital right now, everybody's in the digital channel, it's very crowded, is to get people to pay attention and take action. And that action should be bringing information into the organization and sharing it with the appropriate person who can then advance and have a sales conversation, right? Marketing's lost its way. The, the ability to be able to do that and understand how to get someone to respond in this environment should be a key focus because email response rates are down, webinars are down, there aren't offline events, there's plenty of good content, according to Brent, again, the guys in Gartner, buyers say they have good content now, right? They can't, in fact, there's so much content, they can't figure out which ones are most important content for what their needs are to make an informed decision. So. I think that's an interesting shift that's happening where we have to, to your point, I think follow-up is a really interesting concept. If we believe that this is a journey that's controlled by the buyer now, and we're watching them with all the technology that we have and we're recording that, it's a matter of just following up when we see some kind of movement with that buyer in that journey. Do you, is, that, is that off, perhaps? No, I, think, I, I think to follow up on, I, I think... One of my chapters in the book, and it, it, it's a bit provocative, and I, and, but I, and I call it the sales and marketing alignment myth. Now, you, you and I both know that I, I believe there needs to be alignment, but I think there's a myth in the way it's been practiced because not only is marketing confused at their job, sales is confused at their job. So you have sales organizations doing marketing. Yes. And marketing organizations yes. doing sales. And so there's this concept of, of alignment, integration. And to be honest with you, it I rarely see it like, wow, that's beautiful. But when it is beautiful, it's it's powerful and potent. And so yeah, I think I, I think the challenge now becomes um, my friend Joel Laban at, at, at John Hopkins University says it really doesn't matter what your activity is. It matters what the customer reaction is. Yeah. 
So anytime we can see the customer, what we want, what we want, what we don't have is is the update of the point that the customer is in the journey process. And and I I think one of the biggest challenges I tell my students all the time, one of the problems that we face is that if we're thinking in a sales process standpoint, yeah, we think that the customer, that we're relevant to the customer. Yeah. No, we're not. <laughs> now, if we've if we've mapped, if we've mapped to their life, their journey, their need, yeah, then we're essential to their their very existence. And by the way, we're we're in, we're brought in, we're part of that journey. Yeah. But rarely do we do that job because we we look at our activity process and say, hey, it's been blank hours, blank days. I should follow up. Okay. Really? Why? Did you did, did you create any thought over there on the buyer side? And, and now you're gonna probe. But so it's interesting if you, you know, some of the things around the customer did something, you know, and tracking the customer movement is really kind of creepy and fascinating simultaneously right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, hey, the customer grabbed this piece of content and moved it forward. Well, that's an interesting moment. And that's a trigger, right? When we think about the customer creating trigger moments, but we get a lot of different, we get a lot of technology that could tell us about movement, tell us about moments, and then we can better understand. And if we, if we were to think from a marketing and a sales perspective about how do we augment our capacity to understand the movement yep. and assist the customer in accomplishing what matters and our product is in the relevant space, then those processes are potent, fast, and powerful. And when you add technology to them, you can amplify and magnify and get massive gains in productivity. Yeah, yeah. But boy, that's, I just said a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, again, and this is going to tie back to the promise of technology and the payoff of technology, right? So there's a lot of AI moving into this, this space, right? And we're able to arm relatively new sellers, if not very new sellers, or in your eyes, maybe not even sellers, with insights on contacts, prospects, deep down at the personality level. Uh, any concerns about AI technologies being used for sales? in the hands of the wrong people or in the hands of the right people. Yeah. That we ruse that we use it really stupidly. I mean, at, at the end of the day that we're, we're using, um, we, we have a partnership with XIQ and, um, you know, sometimes my students say, well, this is really creepy. Should this be legal? And I said, well, you know, that's, that's a good debate and it's a good question. I said, and right now it is in, in Europe, it's not right. So it depends on where you're at. Um, but it's very fascinating to say, how am I going to use that? If I, if I can understand a little bit more about how you communicate, how you like to be communicated to, mm -hmm. I can actually enhance the customer's experience. Yeah. Now, 
We both know that there's the 20% or 30%, whatever the case is, that I'm wrong, that the profile's off. Um, but what we found is when we, when our students deploy that and think about it, not all my students do, I try to tell them, listen, a modern seller, if it's a big enough deal and you are a salesperson, you're, you're not using an auto-generated sales engagement, right? You're, you're literally sitting down and creating a message to somebody. And you don't take the moment to scan the LinkedIn profile, scan the insights of the companies, get the firmographics to the degree you can. If you pull an XIQ company dossier on the company, and then you pull a personality profile on the individual. Yeah. And then you have context. The students who do that have amazing results. Yeah. And but why is that? But here's what happens. Yeah. Once again, lazy and busy show up, right? Lazy and busy show up. Because if we could get if we could get the world in modern motions and say, listen, use AI tools in appropriate ways. Microsoft is using this to a degree that is just exciting and creepy. <laughs> they've, they've put what, what you and I have seen at scale, at yeah. a million contacts. And it's literally reading, it's reading the email, it's understanding the personality content, it's understanding the, the communication preference. Then it's actually, actually scoring it, putting it into the queue for the sales rep and says, by the way, you came back from break, your number one priority is it, and it will determine, should it be LinkedIn? Should it be phone call? Should it be email? And it actually creates the email with every contextual component already embedded. You either press send or you, or you personalize. Yeah. That's available today. They're doing this. Nobody else is that I've heard, but so the ability for AI to augment the redundant components that a salesperson does, including bringing in the personality components, is either here or will be here soon. Oh, that, that, it's a super interesting comment because in some ways, it sounds like we are teaching the machines to address the shortcomings of the people who are operating the technologies and the flaws of the past as, as if our earlier conversation, right? Around a lot of investment in sales technology is not a payoff for productivity. It sounds like now as we go down machine learning and AI, that we're teaching the machines not only understand prospects and how to move prospects along, but we're also learning the flaws or shortcomings of the sales reps and helping coach them. And that's an interesting thing is, Coaching, to your point earlier, and I've seen a lot of, uh, in terms of payoff of investment in sales, the value of coaching, good coaching with sales reps, having the tools play the role of one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I'm, I'm curious, are you starting, is that somewhere that there's opportunity for AI, not only from understanding the prospects, but also understanding the reps and their behaviors? Well, I, I'm... Even though I, I, I know a bit about AI, I'm going to also indicate that I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty ignorant about it, too, <laughs> Be, because it's moving so fast. Yeah. 
And I, I think whatever you think it could do, it both can and can't do what we think it can do. Yeah. So I, I think that's the challenge when we get into the space. Most of the companies that are claiming AI are actually only using algorithmic functions that are not dynamic. You know, being behind the scenes, it's correlation based, you know, it's, it's not time series based. I mean, the complexity of some of this, some of these things to truly get to where we need to be and where we yeah. could be is so amazingly complex that I'm not quite sure how far we are. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the stuff, because, you know, the VC world is the VC world, it's slap AI on it if, it, if it's algorithmic. Yeah. Not right. that, it's not dynamic. It really isn't. There's some component of machine learning. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, I've been out of updating myself on that for about six, eight months because of COVID. So yeah. I will indicate that I think my ignorance is relatively high being unplugged for six to eight months. Yeah because it's moving that fast. So, but coming back to your point, I, I, I guess I would phrase it to say, we now have the capacity to augment a salesperson. Now, what you're saying, I, I like to use the analogy of an Ironman suit. And, and about five years ago, I, I used the, the Nancy Narden, you know, technology landscape and said, they put Iron Man over. I said, we we are at the state where you could put your salesperson in an Iron Man suit. Yeah. Now the problem is you can't just put anybody in an Iron Man suit. But there's so we've got all types of new challenges, problems, opportunities. But you know, how do we the way we tend to hire for sales is we hire to scale, right? I, I've got to have a scalable because when I need salespeople, I usually don't get time to ramp. I need a hundred tomorrow when I finally get my funding. Who who am I going to get when I need a hundred tomorrow? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why more people. I it, it's the it's the fallacy of the space. You are now going to enter a market. You're going to choose a geographic area. You're now going to ramp a hundred people you are going to have an ugly experience guaranteed when you start that kind of statement. Yeah. Because there are not a hundred amazing people just sitting at home going, man, yeah, I've been just sitting here waiting for the right opportunity. I'm freaking amazing. Yeah. I'm so good at my job that I'm sitting at home waiting for the 100 person to call me so that I can deploy my amazingly awesome skills. Those people are employed. They're well compensated and whoever has them is probably taking really good care of them. So yeah. who's available when you ramp? Right. Yeah. Who's available? Well, it's the people that don't know what they're doing or <laughs> the people who just got fired. Yeah. Or the, right. It's, it, it's a weird thing that we do. Yeah. So I say that to say this, we start off the equation with the wrong process, with the people process. Now, if you turn this around and say, if I could augment, if I could automate redundant function, that really doesn't need to be done by a salesperson. That's sure. called marketing, right? Yeah. Let's let marketing do the automated components of the outreach and the nurturing and the, you know, right. if there's a standard follow-up email, please don't make salespeople do that. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, there's these motions and functions that we should strategically think through and we should strategically deploy. And by the way, so much of that can be automated. So why? Why why even have salespeople involved in that process, right? right. Yeah. But then the rest of it is, can I augment the existing functions with the right information and coaching for highest of impact and efficiency and effectiveness? And can I use data that processes and says, yeah. hey, here's the probability of this success, here's the probability of that success, and then yet let the human actually be the human in the moment but now let's go back to the talent problem. If I just grab anybody off the street and put them in the Iron Man suit, we get a lot of collateral damage, including the body in the suit. Right. Now, what if I realize that I can amplify and magnify and maybe do with one person what I used to be able to do with maybe 10, right. maybe 20. Right. So then I don't hire 100, I go for 10. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Accordingly, what would happen if we did that, Scott? Well, here's the interesting thing. Maybe we're there. We are there. Right? Well, think about this. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what this may mean to the future is we've been, we're probably going to be a full year where a sales rep hasn't visited a customer face-to-face. Okay. They haven't attended an event, right? Has COVID killed the traditional way of selling in the field no because you have people who are ingrained in what they know how to do but they've been doing something different for for a year so are they going to be are you going to be willing to get on a plane and travel as much as you did as before covid all that time away from your family are you going to be willing to do it again I'm with you. I th- listen. I don't think things are going all the way back, but I'm. I I thought we'd hit the tipping point because I've I've been waiting for a tipping point, and I I I've looked at this. I'm going. God, there's got it. When it comes, the change should be dramatic and quick. Yeah, digital gives you scale. One flight to San Francisco. I'm seeing one client, maybe two or three, if I'm lucky. Maybe I get them more dinner at home. Online, I can see 10. Agreed. But we have the institutional knowledge in the CSO level, the institutional knowledge in the VP level, the institutional knowledge at the director level, the institutional knowledge at the manager level is what I know how to do. And so what you just described is unknown. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. So am I, most, most sales executives don't get their job by walking in and saying, hey, it's a crazy environment. I don't really know how to do my job, but I, I know how to do a college try. No, that's not how they get their job. They walk in and they say, I know how to do this. Give me the reins. I'll make it happen. Yeah. And, and they're going to have to, they're going to have to say, well, then how did you do it? Well, this is how I did it. And, and so I, I think we're ingrained in institutionalism right now that I, I, I'm with you. I see the forces. I think it's going to take existential threat. Yeah, yeah. If, if I right. do it differently, I can kick you. 
Well, I can blow you up, but here's, here's, here's true stories from the street, Scott. Yeah. I get calls probably on a monthly basis. Modern seller that I've produced gets a manager who's institutionalized old school and they're hitting their numbers. They're blowing their numbers. Yeah. Institutional manager comes in and says, my way or the highway. And they say, but your way doesn't work. Yeah. My way or the highway, I'm writing you up, I'm firing you. And they call me up and say, what do I do? Yeah. What do I do? And I said, well, you know, can you transfer? Can you have, no, try to have the conversation with the manager. This manager can't hunt, right? Get this, this yeah, can't. right. And, and, and so obviously that person was brought in because they know how to do the job, right? They know how to, they know how to manage that trench in the way in which institutions manage the machine. But they've got this rogue agent, which is my trained student, who's yeah. actually infecting the organization. <laughs> I like the way you, pre- you phrase it. It's yeah, well, it is. You know, it's. I had a CRO uh, of a startup talk to me, and he said, "I came in. I'm actually transitioning everything in our go-to-market strategy." He said, "I got ten people in my sales org, most of them with a lot of experience." Yeah, he said. Out of the 10 people, I got two who know what I'm talking about. And yeah. he said, they're your, your, your two students. And he said, I put one over our, our actual technology transformation because he understands it all and he gets it and he knows how to do it. And he said, but I got eight people that I got to <laughs> carry over. He said, and to be honest with you, he said, I don't know how we're going to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, Howard, this, yeah. I, we could go on forever and we usually do but we're running up against the end here. So I want to make sure I get time for you to tell us a little bit about the book. When, when should we expect it? And I know having, putting an author on the, on the spot to actually say when, when it might be out, but uh, when can we see the book? It's kind of a general time frame, and, and what are the two or three things that are most important? Here's, there it is. It's in draft one. Um, it hopefully over the holidays, I get a full blown revision yep. and um, I I'm going to, I'll shop it in 2021. Okay. What's the title going to be again? Sales Innovation Paradox, right? We Very invested good. all this money um, and we didn't get the return. It's a paradox, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, it really, it identifies five different cycles that is creating the paradox. And if you yeah. can fix, for each cycle you fix or identify, you're going you're gonna to create a multiplying effect. Any company that gets all of them lined up will get a phenomenal return on investment. And I've identified, and I, my, my last piece over the holidays is to identify a several more companies that most people don't know. Yeah. We, we, we went out and researched over a thousand companies over the summer to find their efficiency levels. And we need to do a few more interviews to kind of yeah. identify the outliers. That'll be great, great insight, great reference as people, they're not going to stop spending money. So they may as well learn how to do it right. So thank you, Dr. Howard Dover at University of Texas, Dallas. We appreciate it and look forward. I'm going to circle back with you a year from now. We're going to talk about whether or not these institutionalized salespeople have changed. (laughs) Thank you, Howard. Appreciate the time. Thank you.